you can really get into your own head or get in your own way and get enough self-doubt or angst or resistance that you have a hard time ever completing that first novel. And I think that future you is going to solve the problems that present you can't if you'll be diligent and faithful to your process. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest um, is one of my favorite authors, and you know that I'm a bibliophile. I love to read. I read a lot of books, and I've read a number of this gentleman's books. This gentleman has uh, written some books uh, for the Jack Ryan universe under Tom Clancy's name since the late, great Tom Clancy's no longer able to do them himself. And he's written some brilliant books. He's also got his own exciting series featuring an intrepid hero by the name of Matt Drake. And I just finished reading one of his books called The Outside Man, which was an absolutely fantastic book. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Don Bentley. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks for having me, Nikki. I feel like I got to look behind me and see who you're actually talking about for being so nice with that introduction. But thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. I got to tell you, I really enjoyed this book. It's a lot of fun. I can't wait till the next one comes out. And um, Don, uh, you're you're somebody whose work I really, really love. Thank it's, you. It's, it's, it's an honor for me to have you here. And let me tell you a little bit about the people who listen to this show, why we sure. do this. So this show takes a very bold and strong stand for freedom, for free expression and free enterprise. Given the state of the world today, I think it's very important that more of us do that. And mm -hmm. the person who listens to this show tends to be someone who supports that point of view and sure. tends to be someone who's in business for themselves. There are they're someone with dreams and ambitions. And they yeah. listen here, well, because they want to be inspired by you. They listen here because they want to learn from you. And they listen here because they want to consume some of the incredible thought leadership and works sure. that you create. But before they can give themselves over to you, they got to get to know you. So, Don, tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Don Bentley? <laughs> well, I, I, my wife likes to say that I couldn't figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And there's probably some truth to that. Um, I went to, was fortunate enough to go to the Ohio State University on an Army ROTC scholarship. And so after uh, school, I got to go into the Army for 10 years and flew Apache helicopters. And it is hard to have a bad day when you get to fly an Apache helicopter. It no is. kidding. One of the most incredible machines ever. They actually pay you to fly it, which uh, is hard to believe a lot of the times. And so over the course of that 10 years, I did a uh, combat deployment to Afghanistan as an air troop commander. And then um, once I got out of the military, I worked um, in a big corporation for a while and wasn't quite ready to, to sit in a cubicle just yet. So I went back and joined the FBI and was a special agent SWAT team guy for a bit. And then since then, in the ensuing 10 or 12 years, I've worked mainly 
uh, for small companies. So it resonate a lot with um, your description of your your um, listenership or viewership because that was me and very much uh, worked for small companies. Um, both the two of the small companies I worked for were veteran owned or veteran founded and still have, have you know, really hold tight to those ideals and, and, and really resonate with folks who are busting it and putting it on the line every day and also wondering some, some, some months, is there going to be enough in, a, in an accounts receivable to do payroll? Because that's what a small business is about, right? You're, you're putting everything on the line for this dream you believe in. And I was also fortunate to be able to do the same thing with writing. Um, from a young age, I knew I wanted to be a writer and got kind of serious in, in 2001 and wrote three books that didn't sell until um, Without Sanction, which is the first in my Matt Drake series, sold in 2018 in a two-book deal. And now, a couple years down the road, as you said, I'm, I'm working on uh, right now actually my sixth book, but this year I have um, my fourth or my third book in my Matt Drake series, which is called Hostile Intent that comes out on the 3rd of May. And the second book in the Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. series, which is called uh, Zero Hour. And I had to think about that for a minute. And so if you count the 17 years and three books that didn't sell, I, I'm pretty much an overnight success. That's, that's what I like <laughs> to tell people. <laughs> wow. So first of all, thank you for your service. Um, yeah. In a day and age where... Um, Fewer and fewer people are answering that call. It's it's incredible that that there's still men uh, and women who do that. Um, and secondly, I think it's awesome that you're a 17 year overnight success as a writer. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. So I do a bit of writing myself. All my stuff's been self published to date. Um, nice. It's uh, my, my first novel uh, was written as a result of an interview I did of a of another successful novelist by the name of G. Michael Hopf, uh, Jeff Hopf. I don't know if you know him or you've heard mm -hmm. of his work. Um, he wrote uh, his most famous book is called The End. It's a post-apocalyptic novel. He's very okay. well known for a little poem he wrote. Uh, that goes something like this. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. You may have heard of the poem. Mm, yeah, he's, yep. he's, he's the fellow who wrote that little poem. It was in one of his books. And when he was on the show, he said, yeah, you should go write your first novel. So I, I, I just kind of decided that, I, that I'd do that. And I've done awesome. that. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the process of figuring out how to at least self-publish it or get it out there myself. Mm -hmm. But um it's an incredible thing that you followed your dream and you followed your passion and you, you brought it to uh, a place of manifestation and realization. But sure. let, let's talk about how it was for you in the early days when you wrote your first yeah. couple of books. So um, what was your experience when you were writing? Did you encounter what Steve Pressfield calls resistance? <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. And, and I think um, the crazy thing about writing a novel and, and congratulations on, on um, writing yours as well is the first part when you're when you're going through it, you're wrestling with the idea of can you actually even write a novel? Can you get to the words the end? And um, like most people you have, and, and again, it kind of goes back to the entrepreneurship you were talking about, you have a side hustle and your side hustle is writing. And it's a grind and it takes a lot of time to get to the end. And so as you're taking away time from family or getting up early in the morning or staying up at late, a lot of times what 
at least I did, you lose sight of that vision of believing, is this actually going to be a finished product someday? Is this time that I'm spending actually going to bear fruit? And for me, um, I, I wrote my first novel when I was in the army. And so I did a lot of uh, getting up at four in the morning to write before I went into to, um, physical training in the morning. And so you're, you're constantly trying to figure out, like, is there even an end date? And then when you hit the words, the end, it's kind of like what you said, now what? Now, now what do I actually do? And so you, you have one tiny accomplishment and then all the self-doubt comes, comes crashing back on you because if you try and do traditional publishing, there's a pretty long process where you have to find an agent. And then if you're lucky enough to find an agent, he or she then shops your manuscript and they try and get it sold in it. Each point in there, there are multiple times um, where you're going to probably face rejection. And so I wrote my first novel and it was good enough to get an agent, but not good enough to sell. And so I wrote my next novel, part of it while I was actually deployed to Afghanistan and then came back and finished it. And um, that got a different agent and it didn't sell. And so then I thought, you know, maybe there's some things in my craft that I haven't um, perfected yet. And so I went back to, to graduate school and got a master's in fine arts and writing popular fiction. And your my thesis was um, my third novel. That's kind of how the program went. So then I had my third novel and shot and Ooh. thought, for sure, this is going to be the one. And so I went to a fantastic writers conference called Thriller Fest, where I met with agents and editors and shopped it. And nobody wanted that book either. And so it was, you know, kind of a, a crushing to your soul moment. And one of the one of the most beneficial things that happened is I met a guy named Nick Petrie, who's a fantastic writer. His his debut was called The Drifter, and it's uh, he, he's on his seventh novel now. Great writer. And we met, you know, after nobody else wanted my third book. And it was supposed to be kind of a chance meeting where we just said hello. And an hour and a half later, I've got my head in his lap and I'm saying, nobody's ever going to read my book. And he was he kind of grabbed me and he said, you were me, you know two years ago, he said, I wrote three books that never sold. Go home and write your fourth book. And I did. And that was the one that that ended up, you know, selling in a two book deal. And so it's writing is um, not for the faint of heart. Certainly, I, I liken it a lot to um, imagining that you're, you're a carpenter and you're building um, a piece of furniture and say it's a, a chest of drawers. And so you spend a year of your life um, making this chest of drawers and then when you go to sell it, the only thing you get back is a form letter that says, thanks, but not for me. And, and you're saying, you know, was it the wrong color? Did it have too many drawers? Did you not like the wood that I used? And that's, that's very much like what writing a novel is, because when you're starting out, you, it's, it's very hard for you to figure out why is it not selling? What, it, what am I doing wrong? Where do I need to improve on my craft? And that's why things like writers conferences are so, so helpful because you can meet people who are farther along on the journey as a writer than you are, yeah. who are willing to offer advice and kind of invest in you. And I can't recommend that highly enough, but it's writing's kind of strange thing where it's a very solitary experience for a good part of it. But then it's also, I found that it's extremely helpful to have kind of a community around you who can grab you and shake you when you need it. And then also kind of, you know, pat you on the back when you need that as well. You know, it's, it's really interesting, the last point that you made. I have a fellow who's been a, um, a teacher and a mentor to me. His name is Jonathan Kramer. He and his wife, Janet, um, have been teaching um, 
programs on uh, manifestation. They, they used to mm. teach the Silva method, which was created by a guy named Jose Silva out of Laredo, Texas. They've been doing this since I think 1981. And he once said to me, success in life is like this. You can't do it alone, but you got to do it by yourself. And yeah, it was good. really, really powerful. I, the first time he said it, I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. But I've started to get it over the years. And what you're saying is very correct. Last year, when I interviewed Jeff Hopf, um, what I started to do was I, I made a practice of, you know what? I'm going to write a minimum 500 words a day, even though mm -hmm. I'm running a business. I run a men's organization. I, I, I do two podcasts. I got two boys in sports and they're teenagers, you know, and uh, single dad and all that jazz. I'm going to write every day and I'm going to make it a practice that I will not let my head hit the pillow if I haven't written at least 500 words that day yes. in this book. So I came up with a concept um, and I started to write and I did it. Uh, every day, 500 words minimum. There were I, I, I never wrote as few as 500. I was actually usually between 750 and 2,000. It's kind of what it ended wow. up being like, right? But but there were some days where I got into the bed, into bed. Something was bugging me. What? what, what, why, what? Oh shit! I didn't write. Oh my god! I gotta get up. And I just got oh. I jumped out of bed, <laughs> bone tired. I jumped to the computer and I started writing. And it was some yeah. of the worst writing I've ever done, but I did it. And <laughs> the fact that I did it was powerful for me. And what you're describing in terms of the artist's journey, the author's journey, is mm -hmm. a little bit of what Steve Pressfield talks about in his book, The War of Art, where he gets into, uh, have, have you read that book? Are you familiar with it? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a quick read. It's a pretty easy read. But I... I, I um, I read that book two or three times. And one of the things he talks about is how um, the resistance with that capital R will mm -hmm. come and tell you, no one's ever going to buy my work. Yep. It stinks. Yep. It's all that stuff. And it, it's kind of yep. incredible to hear someone like yourself come and feed that back to me. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and it, that feeling never goes away, you know, with each, because, it's interesting. You write your first book. And, and when I was talking to my editor, he, thankfully, he waited to tell me this till after I'd handed in my second book. But he said, you know, a lot of people only have one book in them. And he said, it's because you have your entire life to write that first book and you can take as long as you want. You can do as many drafts as you want. And then once it's sold and the publishing industry expects a book a year later, there are a couple things at play there. So number one, you know that someone is actually going to read this book and, and you think that that is a good thing. And in some ways it is from a motivational standpoint, because you don't have to, you don't have to wonder whether or not your efforts are going to be in vain and whether anybody's ever going to read it. But on the other hand, it's actually pretty terrifying because you're getting reviews for your first book as you're writing your second book. And so you can, if you're not very careful with how you deal with that feedback, that can get inside your head as you're trying to write and think, you know, do I need to change something about my process? Do I, am, am I really actually good at this? Was the first one a fluke? Can I even do this? And so it's, it's really, really hard to write that second one. And then once you write a second one or a third one, you're always, you know, everybody in the publishing industry says you're only as good as your last book. And so in the back of your head, you're thinking, man, that last book was pretty darn good. 
I don't know if I have another one of those in me or what if I can't do something like that again or how do I make this? And so it's this, it's this really interesting tension. Uh, my editor's a guy named Tom Colgan. He's fantastic. He's edited everybody from Tom Clancy to Lee Child to Janet Ivanovich. And one wow. of the things he, he told me is that a great author, what makes a great author is that he or she pushes themselves with every book. They refuse to, even like Mark Graney is, is one of my favorite writers. I love and, him. and Tom edits him. Yeah, he's fantastic too. And Tom said specifically about Mark, he's like, Mark has a big following now where he could mail it in if he wanted to. He could just write, you know, another episode of The Gray Man, another installment, but he doesn't. Every single book he pushes himself, every single book he does something different. And that's great on, on one standpoint because you're trying to get better. But on the other one, you have to, as part of that creative process, in the back of your head, you're like, what am I going to do that's different about this book? What am I going to do that's bigger? What am I going to? And it's and it's really hard where you you almost have to have a split personality where you're walling yourself off during the first draft and you're just going to write and tell the story and have faith that the future you that's going to edit that draft is going to come up with the things that make it outstanding or make it better. But you can you can really get into your own head or get in your own way and get enough self-doubt or angst or resistance that you have a hard time ever completing that first novel. And I think if you see a lot, some of the folks who have done this business for a long time are the folks who produce consistently. And so it's, you know, maybe they're not the most beautiful of writers. Maybe they're not even the most gifted of writers, but I think talent alone doesn't make a writer. I think a lot of what makes a successful writer is you keep showing up year after year and putting out another book. And that's, that's key. But I think it's one of the things that people often overlook in, in the favor, especially when you're creating art in the favor of, you know, trying to get inspired or, or, or whatever that is, when a lot of it is, is very blue collar. It's very much showing up for work every day and outputting, like you said, a certain number of words. Otherwise, you're never going to have that first draft that you can revise into something amazing. Yeah, it's so brilliantly said. Um, and I'll tell you, you're giving me a lot of um, a lot of inspiration to uh, to maybe look at the traditional publishing route for my novel. I'm fully expecting it to be rejected, and that's totally cool. Sure, but I'm 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 good with it. I want to just go go through the process and find somebody because I think it'd be good to have like a a, a real editor rather than me and a couple of Absolutely. my buddies read Absolutely. it. I had Jeff read the book, and you know he gave me some nice feedback. But I I, I think it'd be it'd be really cool to get. Uh, a, a proper editor to do that, but yeah. it, it it made me reflect on on life and business. So, mm -hmm. um, last year I I ran a group uh, for CEOs who were men um, who were freedom minded and mm -hmm. were kind of sick and tired of all the lockdowns and all that other business and wanted to wanted sure. to get together and they were still want to grow their business and all that important stuff, but they valued freedom and they wanted to be with like-minded people. They didn't want to be part of a group that could potentially get them canceled or anything like that. So mm -hmm. um, group went really well. We did really good things for a bunch of guys. One guy owned a bunch of restaurants and he, he was, he was failing in January of last year because restaurants were shut down in, in Ontario and mm -hmm. Canada, but he, he, um, he got some good advice from the men in the group. He bought some uh, restaurants from uh, a fellow who was near retirement that were mostly takeout. So he added close to $12 million to his business. Okay. It was, wow. it was ni nice win. Anyways, mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons, um, group, didn't, uh, group didn't stay together. Okay. And one of the first thoughts that came into my head is, 
do I have it in me to resuscitate this group? Or was that sure. just a fluke? Was it just a confluence of events coming mm-hmm. through? So resistance was just messing yeah. with my brain yeah. the whole way through. Yeah. And interestingly enough, there was a fellow that I spoke with, kind of like this gentleman, that uh, Nick Petrie, that you were speaking about, that I was kind of crying on his lap. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't do this. I'm a loser. I'm this or whatever. And he said, mm-hmm. no, you're not. You're, you're amazing. And he said, you, you put something together when nobody else had the guts to do it. And he said, look, I'll help you. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, mm-hmm. I'll put a couple events together with you. And so I just thought, okay, I'm still scared. Just like you said, I still have the doubts yep. and the worries about yep. it, but we're getting together. We're doing the meetings. We're putting things together. And um, at the end of the day, the process is all I can focus on, not the end result. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the other thing from a, from a purely writing perspective is what you're, when you're writing the first draft, what you're doing is comparing a first draft or a work in project a progress to a finished product. When you think about this book I'm verse, working on versus the last book that just came out and how proud you were of that. And it's, and you have to separate those two. You have to realize that what you're working on is not going to measure up to the last thing you turn in because it isn't a polished thing yet. And so some of it is, like I said, I think Stephen King writes a great um, book on writing. It's called On Writing. And and he talks a lot about how much how much of writing and I think how much of success in general is showing up. And and he he spends a lot of it kind of diffusing the the kind of aura around writing or the, the part that makes it magic, but the, but the portion where he recognizes or kind of says, yeah, this is magic, which I agree with is, is goes back to showing up every day. And, and what you were talking about is that if you are willing to spend time in the story every day or almost every day, then the magic part, if you will, happens when you're at the gym or walking the dog or whatever, and your subconscious is still working on that story and solves a problem for you. And so that's the part that's hard to, to plan in that you take on faith that when you start a book, especially if you're like me, I write very organically. I don't, don't outline the book beforehand, that future you is going to solve the problems that present you can't if you'll be diligent and faithful to your process. And so if you'll keep showing up, if you keep writing, that those problems that seem insurmountable right now in the plot or whatever it is you're doing, future you will fix that. But that only works if you actually show up every day and, and kind of keep that story working in your subconscious. So showing up every day really is the key to success in life. Yeah. Not just as an author. So I'm curious, what does showing up every day look like for Don Bentley? Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to write full time. So last summer I made the transition from writing as a side hustle to writing full time. And so I'm, a, I'm an engineer at heart and, and by training. And so that means I have uh, spreadsheets. And so what I do is have a word goal that I try and hit every day. And I've, I've read, um, you know, so again, some of the, the mysterious part of writing is that I think you actually are more productive at more productive at certain times of the day versus others. And that depends on you as a person. And so there's a a great blog post by an author. Her name's Rachel. I forget her last name, but it, the title, title of it, and you can get it on Amazon and stuff now. She turned it into a, a self-published PDF. Is 
something to along the lines of how I went from 2000 words a day to 10,000. And so she talks about, you know, three different things that helped her do that. And so one of them is finding when in the day she wrote most effectively. And so she would literally log every time she sat down for how many minutes and how many words that she got in that period. And she, and I forget which it was, but she thought she was better in the night versus the afternoon or morning. One of them was, but by doing putting kind of this scientific method around it, she realized, no, actually I'm twice as productive if I work in the morning or, or whatever it is. And so I kind of did that same thing and figured out, you know what, I am the most productive in the morning and I'm in the most productive if I don't log on the internet, check my sales numbers, see what my reviews are, do all of that before I get my first words out. And so some of that is, is that discipline and saying, this is when I write, I have X number of words to do, and once I get that number of words, then I'm done with that writing part of my day. And so it, it ends up, this is the first job I've ever had where my compensation is so closely tied to my output on a, on a given day. And so that can be kind of unsettling all on its own, where a lot of times it feels very much like a factory. And if I don't make the donuts that day, that's a day later that I'm going to get paid. And so there's some angst to that, but there's also quite a bit of freedom where you're like, okay, this is what my gig is. These are the number of words I got to get down that day. And so I, I usually start around seven in the morning or so and work until I get those words done. And then like every other uh, small business person, uh, there are all kinds of things that you have to do that have nothing nothing to do with the product you're actually making, the administrative stuff you have to fit in there. And I have found for me, if I try and do those things first, if I try and do emails, if I try and figure out you know whatever's going on with marketing or what the blurb is for the next one, that creative energy that is so integral to me writing the words I need to write in that morning, get used on a different task and they're not there, it becomes much harder. And so I think some of that is kind of taking an honest stake, uh, take rather of you as a person, how you, you, uh, you know, work most effectively and then trying to tailor your day around that as much as you can. Now, if you're, if you're not a full-time writer yet, that's a little, harder to do because you had a day job, but I did that for the first, you know, 20 years or something I was writing. So I, I feel that pain too. And it's still, you can still do it. Just maybe it gets a little bit harder. And so right now I'm on a schedule where I have to turn in a book about every five months in order to stay on schedule. This is how many words I have to do a day and hitting those marks. And so it is, you know, you get writing full-time is great. It's a fantastic job. I'm very grateful to do it, but it's also a difficult job because you are the only one who is going to be uh, in charge of your own success. If you don't write, if you have a bad day, if you have a whatever, it directly affects when you hit your milestones, which directly affects when you get paid. So not for the faint of heart. I'll bet a book every five months. That's pretty intense, man. Yeah, it's it's um I think that's probably about as fast as I can write. I know there are some people who can do that a little faster. Again, I think Mark Graney does about two or two and a half books a year, maybe a little less than that because his are bigger than mine. I, I'm also uh, th- lucky enough to be friends with Brad Taylor. And for a while when he started out, he was doing two books a year plus a novella between those books and he was writing part time. And so when I first got to meet him, I saw him on a panel and somebody was asking him and said, hey, do you ever get writer's block? Do you ever second guess your plot and have to go back and change it? And he said, no, I don't have the time. And he's like, once I commit to the plot, he's like, I have to follow that through. 
because I have a deadline to meet. And there's some goodness in that. I think there's yeah. some goodness in saying, you know what? I don't have time to second guess. I don't have time to sit and reflect and let angst kind of eat me up. I have a deadline that I have to hit. And to do that, I've got to start writing. And again, certainly uh, as you get, I was fortunate enough that I didn't get into that five, you know, a book every five months until I'd written four books on my own. And so I had the confidence that I could write a book. I had a confidence that I could revise it, that it would be sellable. I don't know that I could have done that out of the gate the first time, you know, I started writing a book, but I, I think that's part of it too, is figuring out what are your limits from a production standpoint and then kind of how do you maximize those? So would you mind sharing what's your daily word target? Like how many words do you minimum want to hit every day? Yeah. So I, I, it depends on where I am in the schedule. And so when I start out, it's usually a bit slower and I aim for, you know, somewhere between 1500 and 2000 words a day. Um, when I get into it and I'm like, right now I want to have um, this book that I'm working on right now is the fourth book in my Matt Drake series and it's called Forgotten War and what I, and it's due on the 15th of May. And what I want to have is the first draft done about the 15th of April. So I have four weeks to be able to revise it and such. And so right now um, I'm trying to hit about 2,500 or, or so words a day. I think the most I've ever gone to is about 3,000. And, and so sometimes I'll also look at it by week where if I, I want to hit, say, 12,000 words that week, if I do that, then I can take Saturday and Sunday off. If I don't do that, then I'll usually work Saturday. If I'm coming up on a deadline, sometimes I'll work Saturday and Sunday. And so it's that's a balancing act too, because if you work seven days a week constantly, you, you'll end up burning yourself out. It's a very hard pace to maintain. But at the same time, like I said, you have you have deadlines um, that you have to hit. And so some of that is is me kind of figuring it out as I go. My process changes a little bit with each book and and sometimes on the complexity of the book. But usually at, at where I am now is when I start picking up the pace. And honestly, a lot of it, I listen to other writers do it. For a while, I thought I was, I was crushing it because Mark Graney only writes 2,000 words a day and I was writing 2,000 words a day. And then I heard him say in an interview, he writes 3,000 words a day. And, and I'm like, well, I, I'm having a Stephen King day because he writes 2000 words, but not quite a Mark Graney day. Yeah. So my wife will ask me that every time when she comes home from work. She's like, did you have a Stephen King day or a Mark Graney day? So <laughs> some of it just depends as a writer, too. But I but I think if you can if you can set those realistic word goals and keep them going earlier in the process, then it's more manageable than saying, hey, now I'm six weeks out from a deadline and I've got to write 4,000 words a day or something like that to make it. So it's it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm um, I'm fascinated. I'm learning a ton from what you're what you're sharing and revealing to us right now. I think I think that's fantastic. So you've got your process. You write a certain number of words a day. You've got the other admin stuff. I think it's pretty brilliant what you shared. Don't start your day by getting bogged down in minutia. Go work on the things that really matter for you and your purpose. So do your writing. Yeah. If that's what you got to do first. Right. Get that out of the way. Yeah. So how do you keep your your mind steady and how do you how do you beat resistance? Because the way Stephen Pressfield describes resistance, I am so familiar with that sucker. It's not even funny. 
that sucker's insidious. That sucker gets into my mind. Yeah. That sucker messes with me. And if yeah. I'm being honest, I lose to resistance more often than I win with resistance. Yeah. How is it that you allow yourself to win more often than you lose? Yeah, I think I think you might be giving me too much credit because it is a daily struggle. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's an hourly struggle. And so some of it, like I said, is I'm an engineer. And so I go back to focusing on process quite a bit and saying, when I'm successful, what did I do? And how did I deviate that from that? And is that why I'm, I'm getting resistance? So one of the things that I'll do is when, when you're a writer and you've written long enough, there's usually a word count that you could do that causes you very little angst, right? If somebody said, hey, write me a couple paragraphs about your favorite sports team, you could probably do that. Say it's 200 words or something. And so what I'll do sometimes if I'm completely stuck is say, hey, I'm, I know that I can sit down and write 500 words about the color of the sky on Saturday morning. And so I'm going to set my little word counter and I'll, I'll have my Excel spreadsheet and see how many I've done. And I will write for 500 words because I know that I can do that. And so sometimes when I'm writing those 500 words or say it's 250 words, whatever it is, I'll hit it and then I'll keep going and it'll be easy because I'll break into it. And sometimes I'll hit it and I still won't have anything. And I'm like, all right, that's okay. I'm going to take a break, get another cup of coffee, and then I'll come back and write another 500 words. And sometimes if you look like I'll have an Excel spreadsheet that shows start time, stop time words, and wow. sometimes that'll be four entries or something for the day. Sometimes it'll be eight entries because I cannot for the life of me get going. Or, or what I'll do, again, for me personally, I, I like being up and moving around and doing I don't like sitting behind a desk, but I can sit behind a desk for a half an hour. And so sometimes what I'll do is start the timer on my phone and flip it upside down and shut down my email and say, I'm going to do nothing but work on this book for a half an hour. I'm not going to get up. I'm not not going to look at email. I'm not going to do anything like that. And a lot of times after you'll hit that resistance, but when you don't give up and continue to press through that, you'll start getting the words that you need to. It's not more, more often than not, it is still hard. And there's still stretches where I can see my day because I can look back on the day before or the week before and be like, okay, I got 3000 words. I had a great day from an output perspective, but I did it in 15 minute increments and it was painful as all get out, but I stuck with it and, and kept doing that. And so I think, again, you know, not, not to be redundant, I think so much of it is just showing up every day and not quitting until you get the word count that you need or until you make the progress. And so there are ways to make that easier. You know, there are ways you bribe yourself and say, after I get my first thousand words, I'm going to get another cup of coffee or I'm going to do something like that. Like I don't discount any of that, but I think at, at its core, all of it comes back to your willingness to sit in a chair and do what you need to do until you get the words that you have to get. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that. That's powerful. Let's switch gears for a sec to the marketing of the book, because I think that's uh, a, a much neglected aspect of an yeah. author's journey. So can you tell me how you go about marketing your books? Yeah. So I'm, you, you kind of talked a little bit about um, being self-published versus traditionally published. And for me, the, the biggest difference, and I have a couple of friends who are very successful at self-publishing. They earn a living doing it and do it very well. But in order to be successful at self-publishing, you have to be an expert in a lot of things and you have to run your entire business. And so that, that encompasses everything from 
the cover design of your book to the ads that you buy to market that book to kind of everything. When you traditionally publish, um, the publisher shares much of that burden with you. And so if we go back through that, that again, my book covers are, are fantastic. The team does it. They usually ask me for some ideas and, and I'll tell them what I'm thinking or sometimes grab screenshots of different things and send it to them. But the in-house artists and such do that and then come back to me. Yeah, like the, the outside man there. Thank you. Yes, they do. They do a fantastic job. And uh, they come back to me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And sometimes we make some good. This time I have a marketing uh, director of marketing. Um, her name is Jean Yu, and she is amazing. And so we'll talk um, a lot about ideas from both how we're going to market the book to when I started. She said, here are the four things that you have to do as, as a debut author and kind of went through establishing a newsletter, um, a Facebook page. I already had a Twitter presence, your website, and kind of best practices for what works and doesn't. And she is amazing. Like I've, I've told her boss several times, I'm like, I, I'm new to the book writing business. I am not new to the selling things business. Most of my jobs have revolved around business development of one form or another. And like, I would steal her in a heartbeat because she's a fantastic marketer. And so she then, before a book launches, she comes together with her team and develops, here's the marketing strategy for it. And so you go through kind of everything. And I also have a fantastic publicist. publicist. Her name's um, Danielle Kerr. Yeah, she's and the one who got this interview set up. She's awesome. Yeah, she's amazing, amazing. And so all of that team comes together and you kind of brainstorm on how you're going to market the book through the combination of ads, media appearances, things like that. And so some of that you do as an author, like the newsletter stuff I do, though Gene is incredibly helpful with that. She somehow makes time to review every newsletter I send out before I send it out and help me massage things and move them around and stuff. And so the publisher is very, very vested in your success, but like everything else, at the end of the day, it's your business and it's your book and nobody is ever going to care as much about your business as you do. And so there are some things that I got a little smarter on from book to book to say, hey, what if we tried this instead? Or, you know, for me, a big thing is benchmarking. So in, in the corporate world, when you're selling a product, you go out and say, what are the other products that are like that? Who buys them and how do they perform? I do the same thing with my books and say, who are the people that are buying my books? What other books like that are they buying? And if I know those authors, I'll talk to them and say, hey, what worked for you? What did you see that you did that was good? What did you see that was a waste of time? And that, again, like I said, to, to keep going back, like what is the inflection point? One of the inflection points in my career was going to Thriller Fest, going to this writer's conference where you're talking with people who are making a living doing that, and they can offer you tips and stuff. I think what makes marketing a book hard is that there is no, if, if you make a widget and you can say, hey, company X makes a widget that's really similar to that, it, it's much easier to benchmark and say, here's what they do better. Here's what I do better. Here's how we can market to it. Every book is so different, even within a genre. It's very, very hard to be able to say, okay, at the point I am in my career, who should I be benchmarking myself against, right? Because, because um, you know, a great example is Tom Clancy. So when yeah. he wrote his first book, uh, Hunt for the Red October, he wrote it for uh, the Naval Institute Press, which is a smaller press. And the book was selling okay. It wasn't, it wasn't selling poorly, but it wasn't selling 
magnificently either. And what changed it for him was that somebody got that book into the hands of Ronald Reagan, who was president. Reagan is walking across stage and a reporter calls out to him, hey, Mr. President, what's that book? And he holds it up and he says it's Red, it's Hunt for the Red October. So how do you benchmark that? How do you tie your book about a Exactly. And so Reagan that, said it's a darn good yarn. It. He said that exactly. to the reporter on national freaking television. Exactly. And then that book blew exactly. up. And- exactly right. And so it's so it's hard to to be able to factor in, you know, what what would have that book have done without that time? I mean, Tom Clancy was still the same writer he was before and after uh, Reagan uh, uh, pumped his book for him. But how do you figure that out as a writer? And that's that's one of the harder things I think for marketing is to say. You know, what, what are we doing? Well, what are we not doing? Well, how do we improve on it? And then what is, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, what is our entitlement? What is the best this book could actually do? And are we reaching that or not? I think that's a, that's something I look at all the time because yeah, again, my, my adult life and the majority of my adult life has spent been spent making and selling things to people. And so that factors very heavily on me, but the, the publisher is a great partner for that. But at the end of the day, you own your business and you're always going to be the biggest advocate for your business. That's, uh, that's very insightful what you just shared. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of Clancy's books. I've pretty much written every book, read, read every book that he wrote and then the ones that, mm-hmm. that he co-wrote with Mark Greeny and and then the ones that folks like yourself and Mark and others have written since he passed on. And what got me hooked on Tom's books mm-hmm. were, hey, I love books, I love thrillers. I've loved them since I was a kid. But yep. B, he had a point of view in his books. His books weren't just amazing stories. Mm-hmm. He spoke to yep. a yearning in the human spirit for freedom. and. The Hunt for Red October was a book about America's multicultural background, and, and all of these men and women were were fighting for freedom. They 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 had a a, mm-hmm. a, a desire to come together, uh, volunteers in the Navy, to to hunt mm-hmm. the Red October, yeah. and the contrast between those men and women and the folks on the Red October who were basically <laughs> under the thumb of an evil tyranny yeah. couldn't have been more stark. Yeah. And when yeah. I read that, that spoke to me. I mean, I was, I was a mm-hmm. kid at the time, uh, but it spoke to me. And, and, yeah. and that's what made me want to read his books. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I really like your books and I started to read your books after I read the book that you wrote for, um, for the Clancy universe mm-hmm. was that you have a similar point of view in your books Matt Drake yeah. is a champion for freedom. Matt Drake puts himself on the line for an idea. And that idea is America. That idea yeah. is that there's something bigger than Matt Drake out there that's worth fighting for, that's worth bleeding for, that's worth dying for. And that's why I want to read Matt Drake. That's why I want yeah. to read about the gray man. He, even though the gray man is being hunted by the CIA and all that stuff in there, the gray man has a moral code that he lives by. And a big part of his yeah. moral code is that he's proud to be a, an American and a man for freedom. I, I just think all the successful thriller writers, the ones that I, whose work I enjoy, Brad Taylor, Brad Thor, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Mark Greeney, yourself. Yep. Yep. This is what they're all about. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, back when uh, 
Afghanistan was kind of crumbling last um, last summer. I wrote a, a couple of op-eds for National Review, and, and one of them, as I was researching it, I knew everybody knows it's an all-volunteer army and, and that we have fought two wars with an all-volunteer army for the last 20 years. But what's interesting is when you actually break down the numbers, so there were about 800,000 folks who served in Afghanistan, and most of those people served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and many of them served multiple tours in Afghanistan. And so if you look at that from a percentage point uh, versus the entire population of the United States, which is whatever it is, 330, 350 million, it's about a quarter of 1% of the population has borne our wartime obligations voluntarily for the last 20 years. And so one of the things, um, when my first book, Without Sanction, came out, uh, as you mentioned, my protagonist is a guy named Matt Drake, who is a former Army Ranger and, and now an operative for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And when I was doing the, a radio interview, one of the interviews, one of the interviewers asked me, she said, are you Matt Drake? And I said, you know, I am absolutely not Matt Drake, but I have stood in the same room with him. And that over the course of my career, both in the military and the FBI, and then um, working for companies that primarily marketed technology to Special Operations Command, I got, got to stand in the room with some incredible people. And I have friends now who, who hail from all of those um, crazy organizations. And what I wanted to do more than anything is give a window into what those men and women are like, what drives them, what makes them different, why do they believe what they believe, why do they do what they do. And in, in without sanction, there's a really poignant phrase that's part of the Ranger Creed that, that says, never will I leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And, and that's, a, that's a sentiment probably everyone can agree with. But people, the, the men, primarily men, some women now who, who swear that oath and who live in that community, it's much more than that. And I, ha I had a, a, as an illustration, one of my good friends um, was a retired as a sergeant major and, and his uh, last 12 years or something was as a, a assaulter in um, the Delta Force. And, and so he was his first uh, assignment, operational assignment was in Mogadishu when his Black Hawk down. And he was telling me that when those helicopters were shot down and the Delta Force assaulters were recovering um, bodies and such, were doing so under enemy fire. And they knew that the people that they were recovering were already dead and they were still risking their lives to do that. And that makes you think like, why in the world would you risk the living for the dead? And it's because of that phrase, because it means so much to them that when you stand there before you go on a deployment, your commander looks at you and says, I can't guarantee that I'll bring you home alive, but I do swear that I will bring you home. And that sentiment just is so powerful and so dictates their action that they were willing to risk their lives for men they knew were already dead. And that's powerful. That's such an insightful look into the character of the men and women who stand on that wall and on our behalf. And I wanted my books to be able to provide a window into that mindset. Amen, brother. Amen. You're, you're, you're bringing tears to my eyes, man, and goosebumps to my arms. Um, you know, I, I run a men's organization. It's called the Sovereign Man, and we um, were relatively nascent. And I've got a friend of mine who runs one in, in the States called the Order of Man. Um, I ought to connect you with him. He has Jack Carr on his podcast a number of times. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, he helps Jack Carr sell, sell a bunch of books because Jack has thanked yeah, him. Jack's a great guy. 
Yeah. Um, hey, listen, if you know Jack or Brad, I'd love to get these guys on my show. They, uh, sure. They're, they'd be, it'd be amazing if you could make a connection. I'd, I'd love to connect you with, uh, with Ryan. Sure. Um, he's got a huge audience uh, and he's, he's uh, ex-military himself as well. He served in, in Iraq couple of tours no that'd be great i'd love yeah. to do that yeah it'd be an honor and i'll also connect you with another fellow by the name of uh, larry hagner larry runs the dad edge uh podcast uh it's a huge podcast he's had guys like uh, matthew mcconaughey on and, and some other mm. really cool dudes so i think you'd enjoy that yep. too but coming back to this in our men's organization we have this thing called a code of honor and mm -hmm. the last uh tenet of the code of honor is no man left behind yeah. You know, yep. and, and it's, there may be a man who doesn't even want your help right now telling you yep. to F off, right? Basically, because yeah. yeah. he's messing up his life and he's determined to mess it up. And that's cool. Yep. He can tell you to F off. And obviously you're going to respect what the man has to say, but in your heart, no man left behind. You got to tell that man, yeah. you tell me yeah. to F off, I'll F off, but I'm here and there's a path back for you. And I'm not going to leave you behind. I'm not going to let you fall uh, and die. And do not forget what I'm telling you right now. If you get to that moment where, you know, you're in a place where you're, you're contemplating ending your life because there've been, um, yeah. there've been a few friends of mine who, who took their own lives. Um, mm -hmm. One of whom was in a different men's organization that I was in. And that haunts me to this day, mm -hmm. not because, you know, I blame myself. I don't, I mean, that man chose to do what he chose to do, but it yeah. haunts me that could I have done more to make sure that man yep. didn't feel alone? That man didn't yep. feel like this was the last thing uh, that was available to him to just take his own life. And, and yep. to me, that's important. And the kind of men that you talk about in your book, in your books, I should say, those are those kind of men. They will die to yeah. bring back a comrade's body yeah. and not let it be dragged in the streets by a bunch of jihadist thugs. They will yeah. stand up for what matters. The all-volunteer army in theory is a great thing, but I got to tell you the truth. I, I don't agree with it anymore. I think that we need to have uh, a notion of service. I think every young man should be called to, to do military service. I think every young woman should do some kind of service uh, for the country. Yeah. Um, and I, I like, um, one of my favorite writers is Robert Heinlein. And one of my favorite books that he wrote is Starship Troopers. And in that book, Starship Troopers, mm -hmm. you were only a citizen if you if you had served yeah. in the military. Yeah. You only got to vote if you had served in the military. How much yeah. better would America be run if only the members of the military got to vote for president and got to vote for Congress? How much better a class of leader would we have if that were the case? And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think I think there's certainly something to be said for more of our citizenry to have skin in the game that you um one of the points i made in in my editorial for afghanistan is that when um when the body bags stopped coming home which was great most of america stopped caring about afghanistan and so because you have this tiny tiny percentage of folks who were carrying that load and I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. When I was in uniform, I, I couldn't buy a beer if I wanted to. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I was thanked for my service. And I think people mean it genuinely. But when it's not you or your loved one who's serving, you start to forget about things like that. And I think part of the reason why we spent 
20 years in Afghanistan and, and I think arguably wasted a, a good percentage of those years is because the American populace was no longer holding our politicians accountable for what happened there. And part of the way you make people care about that is when they have skin in the game and the skin in the game comes in the form of a loved one or potentially themselves serving. And so I, I think there's certainly an argument for that, that um, for doing some kind of service. I also think it's an incredibly American thing to be able to fight two wars off of volunteer service, that there are enough people who raise their right hand, men and women, and say, I will do this, that we can that we can fight that war. I think I think that's pretty incredible. But I think at the same time, like what you said, I think serving offers you a very unique perspective. You know, one of the things I try and show in my books is what it looks like in the military and in the army in the military in general and the army specifically, which is where I serve, was the most integrated force in the world, that it didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter what gender you were. You were all Americans and you were going in the, and the person on your left and right might be any race, any nationality, some of them not even American citizens. One of the most moving things I got to do as a, as a commander was to go to one of my soldiers' natu um, naturalization ceremonies in which this person who wasn't even an American serviceman or citizen volunteered to serve in the military and then became a citizen. And it was a powerful, powerful thing. And I wish the unity that I saw or that I, that I got to experience in the, in the military, I wish that was more prevalent in, in society today. And so that's another thing that I try and show in my books is this is a window into what it looks like when it, when it's done well. That's brilliant. That's that's absolutely brilliant. So let's talk about the new book that's coming out. Yeah, tell me a little bit about it. So it's the book is called Hostile Intent, and it's the the third book in my Matt Drake series. It, it goes on sale on the third of May, and uh, in this book, what I imagine a uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that a uh, Ukrainian militia gets hold of a nuclear weapon in order to try and prevent that. And so it was, you know, as I. I was writing it. You, you normally write a book, like I said, about a year or so in advance. And so it was well before um, Putin was was even massing troops along the Ukrainian border. And so it's it's interesting in the military. One of the things that you're trained to do, there's a, a job that's called the S2 or the intelligence officer. And so the intelligence officer's job is to uh, to give you the outlook on the battlefield of what the enemy's thinking. And then before you do an operation, so when I was a troop commander or a lieutenant, they would, the, the intelligence folks would make this whole terrain model. And so you would stand on the terrain model and walk through the plan and say, here's my flight of Apaches. We're going to come to this um, attack by fire position. We're going to stack from left to right. We're going to orient on this road. And so the intelligence officer, he or she is playing the enemy's role. And so they say, okay, Here's how I'm going to come down this road, for instance. Here's what I'm going to do in, in uh, reaction to what you're doing. And so it, it's very good in that it, te it teaches you to think from the enemy's perspective. And that's an incredibly great tool to have as a writer in that when I sat down to write this book and I said, you know, if I was Putin, what would I do? What are the false flag operations I would run? How would that work? And so a lot of what I imagined in this book is unfortunately um, kind of mirrors what's going on in the Ukraine. Now, what I will say that I, I completely missed or didn't take into account is the incredible bravery of the Ukrainian people and how they're resisting the Russian onslaught, which is incredible. But it is, it is um, 
it's the biggest book I've ever written. Um, it shows it's it's much more of kind of a an epic military thriller, and then you get to see this from multiple points of view. Everything from a young Russian paratrooper to um, my, my protagonist Matt Drake to kind of everything in between. And so it's a really fun book. It takes place in Vienna and in the Ukraine. Uh, when I was stationed in Germany, I actually got to visit Vienna. I ran my first marathon there, and it's it's this incredible city that has um, both east and west where it comes together during the cold war vienna was kind of ground zero for a lot of the the amazing cloak and dagger stuff that happened there and there's a kind of a folklore if you will that at any given day in vienna there's six thousand different spies that are walking in the streets of vienna and so i knew i had to to set the book there and then it and then it kind of spills over into the ukraine and in the and the rest of the book happens there so it's called hostile intent it's a ton of fun I think folks are going to love it. I think they are too. So um, let me ask you a question. Um, I'd like to support you in the book. Um, I've got a, I've got an event coming up, a first live event in, in Canada and Ontario for freedom loving business owners and entrepreneurs. We're, we're looking to have 50, 60 of those folks there. I'm wondering if it might be possible to buy a bunch of your books and, and, and get them signed and get them into the hands of the people and, you know, maybe even have yeah. you make a bit of a video cameo, Zoom cameo appearance to say, hey, guys, you're about to get the signed book that's ripped from today's headlines, because I'd love to do something like that if that's possible. No, that'd be fantastic. I'd, I'd love to do that. All right. I'll reach out to you offline. Thank you for being open to that. I think yeah. that, that's great. Um, it's happening after your book's released, so we'll be able to get some <laughs> copies. Uh, the, the dates are May 13, 14. We'll figure something out. But it's... Uh, it's awesome. great. I'm going to make those introductions for you to those uh, other podcast okay. hosts. Um, uh, I like connecting people. In fact, one of the books that I wrote, let me just grab it, self-published is called The Power of Connecting. Uh, oh, nice. So it's, um, you know, I, I'd love to see how else I can connect you with people inside my network, if you'd like, from both a podcast sure. and another point of view. Uh, I love what you're up to, man. Thank you for taking the time to share your, your genius and your wisdom with me. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up by asking you to give us your top three expert action steps for my listeners. So these are your three best pieces of advice. What do you say? Sure. So I think the first one is you have to know what you're selling and who you're selling it to. Um, my, from my perspective, one of my best friends that I met in grad school, when my first three books weren't getting sold. Uh, we were walking and, and at that time it was when there were still malls and when there were bookstores and malls. And he's like, come on, let's go, let's go look at the books um, that are you, that your book belongs uh, next to. And so we walked into this bookstore and he said, point me three books that are like yours that yours should be shelved next to. And I said, this one, this one, this one. And it was three books that were on the best selling list. And so we, he took each of those three books down and he's like, let's skim the first chapter. And he's like, what happens in each of those first chapters? And in every single the first chapter, there was either a gun in the first chapter or a gun was being used. And so he said to me, is there a gun in your first chapter? And so the, the point being that if you don't know what your audience expects, if you don't know what your readers are looking for, it's going to be hard for you to craft a product that they want to buy because they're, they're conditioned to want to buy a certain thing, whether they can actually explain it or not. And you have to understand the audience you're selling to. And you also, my editor also likes to say, you need to be the same, but different. So you don't want to give them exact 
exactly what they already have, because why should they buy your book if there's one like that? But you have to understand what your audience is, number one. Number two is you have to get better at your craft. And so, again, you know, going back to what we talked about before, the best writers are folks, men and women who do not uh, just call it in with each book, that with each book, they push the boundaries with each book, they they try and get better at their craft. And so that if you want to be a writer, you have to read a lot and you have to write a lot. When I ask folks who, who they say, hey, I want to be a writer and I say, great, what do you read? And they say, I don't really have time to read. And I think you're not going to be a writer because that. That is, the, that is the thing that you have to do. And one of the ways you get better at your craft is you look at other writers who are doing it very well, and then you pick it apart and you say, what are they doing? So when I when I was having a hard time selling my book, my favorite writer of all time is Vince Flynn. And I, I took my favorite book of his. Yeah, he's fantastic. Kyle Mills, who took over the series, does a great job too. Um, yes. But Vince Flynn is by far my favorite ever author. And so I took the book of his that I loved and I took a note card for every chapter and I color coded them by point of view and I taped it all up to my bedroom wall, which it was like some looking at the blueprints of the house. And so I could start to see how he did certain things when he introduced new characters, when there was an action scene, how many, how much space he went before Mitch Rapp came on. And so to be a good writer, you constantly have to do that. You have to pull that apart. You have to dissect what other writers are doing and put in the work to understand what your competition's doing well and how they're doing it. And then the final one, which is kind of, I think, the theme of what we talked about before, is you have to show up. You have to show up every day and work at what you want to do. There's another you know, famous saying among writers is that anything can be fixed or anything can be revised except for a blank page. And so you can write the worst first draft ever, and you can fix that. What you can't fix is... When you sit in front of your computer and don't write anything because, you know, you're not inspired, you just don't feel it, you cannot fix that blank page. And so if you don't show up and do the work, you're never going to be successful. Those are three incredible, incredible expert action steps. And I thank you for that. And and honestly, what you said about um, uh, taking uh, the work of uh, other writers you like, if you're a writer, like Vince Flynn Mm -hmm. in your case, and and basically highlighting and color coding everything is absolutely fantastic. And showing up is is phenomenal, too. So, listener, Dom Bentley is the real deal. Now, you got to go buy every single book this man's ever written. So go get all the Matt Drake books, like they're awesome. I, I've enjoyed the first two. Go get Hostile Intent. It's 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 ripped from today's headlines. And uh, honestly, go get the books that he's written for the Tom Clancy universe as well. Just go to Amazon, look up Tom Bentley and make sure that you do that. And um, listener, here's the other thing I want you to do. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you benefited from it and you have a fellow entrepreneur or a writer who could benefit from the wisdom Don shared, just share the episode. We don't charge for the episode. We don't have any sponsors or advertisements to to clutter it up. All we ask is that if you got something good from it, just pass it on to your fellow man and your fellow woman so you can take it to uh, a place and to the heart of someone who needs to hear that message. That's what we're all about. Be a champion for freedom, for free expression and free enterprise. Support our work and support the good work of great men like Don Bentley. Don, thanks again for coming on the show, man. It was really, really awesome. I'm really looking forward to reading the new book. I'm looking forward to buying a whole bunch and getting them signed. I'm tickled pink. And and, and I, I think the people at the event, they're going to be super surprised and excited about, uh, about seeing your face in your new book. That'd be great. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. I really appreciate it. You bet. And look for a few introductions to some folks uh, from, uh, from me as well. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Dom Bentley, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or check out uh, anywhere you listen to this podcast, be it on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, Google Play, etc. Just go in there and make sure that you uh, find out more about Don and his great work. Make sure you buy his books. Make sure you support his work. And, and enjoy yourself. Catch yourself in a space where you're entertaining yourself, but also let yourself and your heart and soul be touched by the message of the great men and women who are willing not just to fight, bleed, and die for their fellow man and woman, but to go and pick up the body of a dead comrade. That will ennoble your soul and make you a better person. So make sure you do that. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.